0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to the second installment of the Winter 2018 UC Santa Barbara Innovative Story Series. I'm John Greathouse, and you can follow me um, on Twitter, at John Greathouse. Tonight, our sponsor is Junction. PageAction makes payment processing easier, more secure, and more effective. And if you don't believe me, just consider the fact that they they process over $2 billion worth of transactions annually. So they're obviously doing something right. Not only that, Glassdoor has ranked them as one of the best company cultures in America to work for. So it's a great place to work. It's an effective technology that delivers value to its customers. uh, And it's located right here in Santa Barbara. So it's uh, it's a wonderful um, addition to our tech community. You're doing anything with billing, anything, if your business has any kind of um, online commerce or even offline commerce, you should be checking out what Pay Junction's up to. They might be able to save you some money. Tonight, we have Aitan um, Abbas with us tonight. He is the former uh, co-founder, he's a co-founder and former Chief Strategy Officer at Scopely. Scopely's a mobile game a company. I bet you everyone in here and many of the, many people that are watching here um, online had played one of their games. The company is currently doing over $100 million in revenue, and they have some of the most popular games um, on on mobile devices. HM was also the head of Google's uh, domain channel, where he grew that business from $13 million when he arrived to over $600 million when he left a little over four years later. That is incredible growth. Before he joined Google, he was a co-founder and vice president of a company called Oingo, Which later changed its name to Applied Semantics. Um, In 2000, Aiton had this idea that maybe they could take this concept of of, um, meaning-based search and meaning-based and and domain name selection, and maybe they could take kind of mash that all together. And they came up with a product called Oingo AdSense. Oingo AdSense is um, what drove Google to purchase the company. There was other assets that they that Google acquired and used. But Oingo AdSense became Google AdSense, and I would argue probably one of the most profitable technology acquisitions of the last 15 years. AdSense are those ads that show up when you do a search, and they're contextually relevant ads based on what your search terms were. Um, They're off of the right, now they have them on on the top, but that's really that technology that Google acquired from Aiton's company many, many years ago. Aiton has also created award-winning public service announcements, he's a filmmaker. Um, on a variety of subjects, some comedies. Um, his, his videos on tolerance and bullying have been widely regarded. Uh, and in fact, one of them is it won an award and is now playing at the Tolerance Museum in Los Angeles. Aiden graduated from UCLA, so he's not a UCSB alum, but he's a UC alum, so we're still very proud of him. He got his undergraduate degree in, in engineering and science, in computer science, excuse me. Um, and we are very, very happy that he took the time out of his busy day to come up here from Los Angeles and spend his time with us and with everyone watching online. Let's give Aitno a really warm welcome to our stage. Great to see you. Thanks for coming. All right. Wow. Only two like multi-hundred million dollar exits at this point. Come on, Brian.
1: There's, there's still time. <laughs> You're
0: still a young man. No yeah, about st- it.
1: still going. Uh, hopefully a couple more in the, in the future.
0: I'm uh, sure you will. Yeah. Um, so you grew up in, in the hotbed of, of technology uh, world, and that's what you owe all your success to. And I am talking about San Antonio, Texas, by the way, which I love. I actually love San Antonio. Did you... Did you have the, the sort of this dream as a kid to always come to California? That was my dream. I always wanted to get here, and I finally did it. Or did you end up just going to school here, and that's how you made your way out here?
1: Yeah, I, uh, so I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. I spent about seven years there. And no, I had no idea that I wanted to get to California. Oh, really? But like everybody else's story, as soon as I got here, of course, it's the greatest place on earth. So yes. uh, it, it, it held me in. But, um, you know, good, good experience growing up there in a sense that... Uh, I think one of the things we've learned here in the past few years is that we're a fairly polarized nation, right? Yes, yes. Um, we've, we have learned this uh, over social media and, and political debates in our country. And uh, I think it was a good experience to essentially have lived in a red state for a long time and yeah. have lived in a, a blue state. I also spent a few years in Ohio growing up and Florida. So call it like a red state, a blue state, and two states that could swing. And um, I, think it's, I think it's really good to especially in this, again, this political climate to sort of, we have to share this country and for everybody to sort of get to know each other. And uh, so that's, that's the experience I think I take away from living in San Antonio, Texas. Yep,
0: and it sounds like you moved a bit. I moved a lot growing up. What, um, I think, actually think that's a real plus. It's not necessarily easy to do it when you're going through it, yeah. you know, when you're a kid, but I think it's really impacted me as an adult. How about you? Do you feel like that being thrown into these situations and having no choice but to make friends and...
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things that shapes you, like moving, you know, four big cities by the time you're you're seventeen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole, you know, who are you going to sit with at lunch? And, right, right. Uh, all, all these questions that we have as as young folks, and I think, I think it's I think it's both what you're saying. It, it can be tough for a young person to have to switch schools in in fifth grade or ninth grade, um, but uh, but it also does round you and shape you and give you kind of basis for just being a bit more worldly in terms of uh, you know maybe having walked in a different person's shoes or, or meeting yeah. a, different, a different person. Yeah,
0: just being thrown into a situation yeah. and, and, and dealing with it. So you were um, nine, um, Gil, um, your brother, um, who was 13, when you guys were working with an Apple IIe. And it's kind of funny. We, I, I talked to Brian Fox um, Yes, uh, last week, and Brian was one of the origi- originators of GNU back at MIT. So, you know, and he was saying the same thing. He said he was working on an Apple IIe, just trying to code, trying to do you know, what he could do as a, as a, as a fairly young person. What, what, did you guys do any real programming, or were you just sort of gaming? What, what were you doing with the device at that point?
1: Yeah, we were actually trying to program back then. Um, I remember my, uh, my my favorite arcade game back in uh, 1983 was a game called Dragon's Lair, and every other game, uh, you know, cost a quarter, but this game cost 50 cents. Oh. Um, so I tried to reprogram Dragon's Lair on my computer. It was totally awful. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I... Uh, you know, we'd be doing things like that. Um, there's a movie called War Games that came out in 84. Yep, yep. And uh, I tried to try to do a simulation of geothermal nuclear war. Um, uh, maybe when you guys watch Ready Player One this summer, it's going to actually refer to that. You'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. But uh, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd have fun trying to, to to code computers back when I was nine and ten years old.
0: And it's it's so, I kind of had the same, I asked the same question to Brian. It's, it'd be easy for someone twenty years old to sit there and go, Well, wow, you know, I don't have that opportunity, like the Apple IIE like that was at the beginning. But every generation has their own opportunities. This may not be yeah. obvious at that moment. What are the things now that you would what's the advice you would give an emerging entrepreneur to do the Apple IIE of today? Like what should they be doing to get to get closer to this technology that's all around us?
1: So I actually think um, so much attention has been Sort of placed on blockchain and crypto in the last year, that everyone's forgotten mm. how important AR and VR is about to become. Uh-huh. Um, these two platforms are like completely virgin platforms that nobody's done anything with yet. Um, Oculus Rift is like a great product, right. but there's not that much, there's not that many applications for it yet. So, think about everything that's happening on a mobile phone right now, whether it's a, a dating app or a rental app or a blogging app or a video app or a meeting app or. All these different things that are happening on your mobile phone eventually pretty soon need to happen in AR or VR. And so a lot of these experiences need to get recreated all over again.
0: Are you in a comp- any companies right now that are doing that?
1: Um, I invested in two VR companies. One was Oculus and the other is uh, nice. called Weaver in, uh, in, in LA. They're trying to, trying to connect the, the big, big movie studios to VR.
0: Weaver. Yeah, I've heard of Weaver. So yeah. Oculus, that's a billion dollar exit. So you, you, you associate it with that one too. Good for you. Um, my friend Kobe Fuller was in that one yeah. as well. Yeah, good guy.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think, uh, I think we're, the, the wave has to hit us pretty soon. It's just it's such a disruptive technology. How many people in the room have uh, have been inside VR at this point? Right, so about half of you. Um, I, I mean, I I remember the moment I kind of first put on the Oculus, and I, it'll be a, a, a moment I remember. Unlike, like, I can't tell you when I sent my first text message. I don't remember that. Mm. I don't remember where I did my first cell phone call. Right. I, I don't remember the first time I ever sent an email, but I'll never forget the first time I stepped into VR. That was significant.
0: Why do you think it's taken so long? I mean, Facebook made that major acquisition. We really haven't heard a whole lot about. I mean, there's always, yeah. they're always talking about pornography is going to be the big, you know, it's always the leader, right? Gambling and pornography.
1: Always got to push us forward somehow, right? <laughs> um, I mean, there are, there are some technology constraints. So right now, uh, you know, the best Oculus Rift required a, a $1,500 computer Good. it was hooked up to with the wire. Like, we yeah, don't like wires. Yeah, we right. like wireless. We like things being mobile. We like things being easy. And so when it gets easy and, and we can have a long battery life and there's a lot of content for us, then I think we'll, we'll all come back around and spend more time in, in these experiences.
0: Where do you see, um, let me rip on this for a second,
1: more like augmented reality going? So I've seen some apps, you
0: know, the whole, uh, you know, a lot of the gaming apps would have some, some kind of an overlay when you would look at the world through your, cam- through your phone or your camera. What else do you see, though? Where else do you see that going?
1: I mean, I guess, again, I, I keep thinking of, I keep thinking of, like, the existing things we need our cell phone for and how does that, so we, what, we check our cell phones, say, 100 times a day. And if it wasn't such a pain in the butt to pull it out our, and push the button and look at it, we'd probably look at it, like, three or 400 times a day. Um, so all of these things sort of need to happen without us going to it. We sort of need to have all these notifications, um, just sort of, uh, you know, show up in front of us and we decide whether we want them or don't want them. Um, you know, I, I think it, I think it starts to feel and look like that, Mm -hmm. you know, er, early on, you're just kind of taking what the last technology sort of started handing you and, uh, before, before eventually you start to figure out things that were never dreamed of on this device.
0: Yeah, I think there's going to be train, you know, some of the real mundane pedestrian things, but that add value. So for somebody that's maybe a technician that isn't as well trained, having that overlay, like reminding them what those parts do or whatever. Driving, if we we still drive. But it's funny because I think we were, you know, Google Glass. I mean, I think that really set us back a long way because it became like, don't be a glass hole, that whole like... You're talking to somebody and they're like filming you, and it just—it was a very just, dis, dis, uh, disruptive in the wrong way technology.
1: Google has never really cared much about marketing. Right. Um, <laughs> It's—it's right. it's like they've always had just the best product in the world, and they never had to worry about sales or marketing. Right. And I remember, uh, you know, working for Google at times, you'd say, "Hey, we need to do this to get this customer," and the general kind of messaging from the top was, it doesn't matter if we get this customer, because mm. if we don't get them this year, they'll come to us next year. Mm. And they just really didn't care if they'd like, that was kind of how it felt. And they were right. Um, you know, as a, as a younger guy, I was like, no, we need to get this deal. right But uh, I guess when you have just the best product in the world, you can afford to be patient.
0: Well, and I wonder now with, with Alphabet and all the different companies, I mean, that I don't think that overarching... View of the world is right for every vertical right for search it worked, yeah. it may not work for all these others, so we may see that some of them embrace uh, customers a little more strongly so I've, one thing I really found um, interesting in your background and I, and I touched upon it in the introduction is that you 've made some really cool films, some funny ones, some very serious ones, um, and when you are thinking about going to college or as a young person, a little bit younger than these folks here but you were trying to you were sort of having this internal debate between film school and maybe something more more practical, yeah obviously you, you did both, which is wonderful what, what advice do you have for students because I have a lot of them come to my office hours and their parents want them to do one thing and they want to do something else
1: um, I was always a very reluctant computer science engineer, um, even i'd say pro- I didn't really want to do the degree, but people around me were like, This is a good degree. You should do this thing. <laughs> right. You're good at this thing. You should do it, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I was the kind of kid who was like, Yes, I guess I should do it. Um but I, I sort of I sort of grit my teeth through that degree and the first year of being a programmer, like I I didn't want to do it. Um and I, I get to look back on it and say and, and think, uh there's a lot of great skills you get to pick up. Um but it's it's a balance, right? A lot of the things in life that are good for us don't feel good and uh learning to be a computer programmer for me you know it's it's hard right 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 yeah and but you
0: ended up being able to follow your passion you know through life and i think that's an important lesson that you know that all of you guys can take away from this is just because you forestall a dream doesn't mean it's you're never gonna you're never gonna see that dream happen
1: so here's the interesting takeaway for me i I guess i my whole life romanticized about the idea that i'd maybe become a filmmaker one day. Right, right. And so I, in many ways, like, I'm going to do this tech company so that one day I can go and make a movie. Uh Um, And uh, and I'm going to sell this tech company one day so I can go and make a movie. And then, you know, you go through the journey, you get there, and then I got to make a couple of the movies I wanted to make and then realized I didn't exactly like making movies. I really loved making companies. Really, really. And I was doing what I loved all along. It just took me to get to that, to realize that. So like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, right? Yeah. have home the whole time. Yeah, I was always home. So <laughs> after, I really only took about a, a year, year and a half to make a, a, you know, some short films and some YouTube videos and then uh, came right back to making companies. So
0: what was it about making films that you thought you would really enjoy and then what was it you didn't enjoy?
1: It seemed more glamorous. Mm. Things seem glamorous from the outside when you don't have to actually do them. Right, right. Then when you actually get there, you it's realize it's, it's just as hard work as building a company. right. Right. It just at the end, you get to piece together this hour and forty-minute. Maybe not even a masterpiece. Maybe it even sucks at the end. But it still was really hard. Yeah. So.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Um, we'll um, we'll take the first student's question after this. So I just wanted you, uh, to alert you to that. So is shake state is that still the entity that you're involved in you guys made some funny move you know videos you had some, you had a lot of views
1: no that was that was like one and a half years circa 2008 okay i came right back to making you know since 2011 i've come back to tech and done three companies got it okay yeah, yeah. we'll take a student's question uh when you were working at google were there any significant challenges or obstacles you had to overcome with your team
0: so in respect to the, now that his team was a part of Google? Yes. Okay. Uh,
1: it was a, we came from this startup atmosphere where we were able to, once we located a customer, talked them into buying it, sent them a contract, got them to sign that contract, got it over to the tech guy, got him to create an account, got them live and probably generating revenue in a 24-hour period, maybe 48 hours. But we were just aggressive. We needed the money. We needed yeah. everything to go, go, right. go. Right. Um, the moment I got to Google, the day after that process that I just went through it took four months. It's a four-month process, and Google is one of the most efficient companies in the world. Yeah. So if you think about it, um, I had to go through the same process with Yahoo as a customer, and it took eleven months. So, and again, Yahoo, yes, maybe they're a little slower than Google, but still, like this is a relatively efficient company, and you, you get to you, you learn just how inefficient big companies are. And then you realize that there are plenty of businesses left to invent. Because if there are big companies that still exist, there's still crazy inefficiencies that are happening. Right. And you can go and solve any one of those.
0: So let's talk about a couple of the experiments. And one of them ended up, you know, um, you ended up taking that expertise into Google. So Domain Sense, Domain Park, there was others. What, was there something in your culture that was fostering this creativity? Or was it just survival like, what could someone else learn from that experience?
1: The core technology that we had built, this semantic search technology, did lend itself into a variety of applications. And then we just got really creative, and every time we'd meet a customer, every time we'd meet someone, uh, right. we'd try to think, like, what can we build for them? Because right. we need somebody to buy something from us. Right. So when we, uh, we met with .tv, remember, remember yes. those guys? I remember the .TV. TLD.tv? <laughs> they had these domain names, and we thought, what can we use our meaning-based search technology to, like, so we, on the, literally the week of the meeting, we crafted two products for them, Domain Sense and Domain Appraise. We're like, buy one of these or both. Yeah. And they end up buying both of these products that we sort of invented for them yep. the same week. So, so what's important there is you can
0: do that when you're at a certain stage in your venture's life. If you're doing that in years four or five or six, you're going to be screwed, right? Yeah, yeah. You can't have your salespeople making up products yes. uh, on the fly. But in the early, I did the same thing. Yes. I would do some research, maybe I talked to a couple people at the company, and I would essentially come in with a new product. Wouldn't necessarily tell them it was brand new, and just see if they were how excited they were about it. If they, if they were, if they had track, if it had traction, and they were willing to fund it, I'd go back and I'd say, guess what we're building. But, but keep in mind, that's, that's great when you're in survival mode and when that's really, you're trying to find that product market fit. It's detrimental, obviously, once you have product market fit. You can't, and there's some people that just can't contain themselves. like They constantly want to build that new product just because it's cool and sexy. So I, I like that you know, Domain Park starts making money. Um, I had another business where I had a little product that no one's ever heard of that really kept the company going cash flow-wise. So now you guys start, start making some inroads in search. You beat Google at USA Today, mm-hmm. and that was, I guess, a wake-up call for them. So a couple questions. How did you guys beat them? Like, what was it? You, mean, you beat Google, right? And then was it sort of an immediate thing where they said, who the hell is this company? Let's buy them, or did that take a, a bit of time?
1: So, yeah, the, um, this, this relationship with the USA Today, you know, we have been investing in it for about a year. We had another product they were um, using from us. So by the time AdSense showed up, uh, <clears throat> um, you know, we... we We sort of already had this relationship, and so it it happened to be the first head-to-head count Mm. we went against Google, and it just happened to be fortuitous and timely that they chose us, and that sort of sent a a big warning signal to Google that there was something we might be able to do a little better than them.
0: Well, obviously, Google went back and said, what do you mean we lost this business? And who did we lose it to? Um, And I'm sure USA Today told them, and there must have been something...
1: We'd already been we'd already been talking to Google at this uh, point. Okay. Um, so Gill and Sergey's relationship predates both Google and Applied Semantics. Oh, okay. They knew each other, uh, friendly. Um, went off, started building their companies, and you know, when, when we started reaching kind of the same, uh, you know, same space, they were eventually the, t- the two guys who finished off the deal. I uh, think. Uh, nice. You know, eight people in a room. Term sheets back and forth for a month, but it was those two who finished it.
0: And it always comes down to that. Like you, it's, you know, companies are made of people, right? And you think of Google, oh, my God, like they're just this monolithic, amazing. It's just a bunch of people. And it's all about making those relationships. Oftentimes, you know, even before you walk into that particular deal, you met somebody, you know somebody, friend of a friend. So it's, it's really about having that network, having that strong, solid network, so that when you have that moment that you can take advantage of it, you, know, you can do that. So AdSense, you know, we sit there, and, you know, all these years later, and I said it was in the introduction, you know, one of the most profitable products in the last 15 years. It makes total sense to us now, but you guys, it wasn't an overnight success. It took a couple years. Is there anything that, looking back, you think you could have done to accelerate that adoption, or did just, was that just how long it was going to take?
1: Yeah, if you, um, if you guys go and Google uh, Oingo AdSense right now, you'll see a press release from December of 2000 when we launched the product. And uh, we... We were pretty good about getting AdSense in the hands of the people we wanted to use it. So we got beta tests with Yahoo, Look Smart, and AltaVista within 60 days. And we, we found pretty quickly that they thought it was neat, but they weren't interested in paying for it or licensing it.
0: Was, it. was it, did they have a fear of monetizing search at that point? or
1: I think we were like, December 2000 was already just bad times. People right. weren't making any right. money. There was just no extra money for, to try new tech stuff. Right. Everyone was trying to, like, save money.
0: But I'm surprised they didn't. I mean, I get it. I was there, and I remember what happened in March of that year. Um, but I'm kind of surprised that they didn't feel like it was a new revenue stream for them. Yahoo at the time was struggling to
1: uh, make money. So at the time, when we, first, when we first launched AdSense, it was just the technology. It was just the matching tech. Mm. It didn't yet have the advertisements. Got it. So the innovation, when we relaunched it in the uh, end of 2002, is that we had ads from pay-per-click ads from Overture, now Yahoo, yes, Oof, yes. AOL, Verizon. Right. Um, and so we came back with both the tech and, uh, and the advertisement, and so it was a, a better value proposition.
0: Got it. And, and you know, again, younger people will, won't know this, but when Google start, first started talking about doing ads, it was sort of, a, there was a whole section of the Internet that was not up for that. Like, what do you mean you're going to, you know, because Google had the, what they were known for was that screen. It just had the search box, it had their logo, and that was kind of it. And all of a sudden, things would show up on the right, and on top.
1: And... Yeah, it was, it was very, uh, what was the word? Um, it was a bit taboo. Is it taboo the right yeah, word? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to, to throw advertisements on your search results back then. When, when AltaVista was playing around with doing you know, people would write articles about it. We're corrupting the search. Right. And we're you know, bringing, you know, it, it's now super commonplace and accepted that, of course, you would have advertisements there. But for a long time, nobody wanted to do it. Yahoo and AltaVista were like, we're holdouts. We're not doing that. That's right, gross. Right, the The sanctity and purity yeah. of the internet and of search. How quickly, when the crash happened, did that yeah. go away? Yeah, making
0: money, Hmm, that's not so bad after all. Right. Well, funny how that happens. We'll take the next student's question.
1: Yeah, Aiden, can you describe the transition from being a tech entrepreneur out of college to eventually selling to and working with Google? Yeah, there were... Um, you know, there are a lot of different phases to it. I I, I kind of um, think of them, you know, you think of your high school experiences like four years and middle school is three years and university might be four or five, six years for some of you. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, four years for everybody. Um, but I think life experiences kind of feel that way too. Like, so I worked at Advanced Micro Devices for three years and that was middle school. And I worked at, uh, you know... Uh, Applied semantics for four years, and that was high school, and I worked at Google for four years, and that was university. And, you know, you have these slices of life that you spend a few years doing, and at some point you'd feel ready for the next thing or challenge in life. That's how it evolved.
0: Got to learn every step of the way, though, because you're building a foundation that you're going to put that next thing on top of. So you've raised a lot of money since you know, since Oingo. Um, what, have, do you feel like you found that sweet spot between not raising too much and raising you know, too little. I mean, it's kind of hard. It's always clear in retrospect. And if you feel like you've gotten that insight, I'd love to hear sort of how, you, how you've gotten there.
1: Um, you know, this is one of these ones you, could, you can probably learn. So I think it's very difficult to build a, a really scaled business without institutional capital. Yeah. It just rarely happens. Especially now. Yep. Um, occasionally it happens. But there's a reason Uber raises $8 billion, because it needs to win, right? And if not, someone else is throwing money on that problem. Um, at the same time, I think you can—you always have to watch the finances. You always have to watch what you're spending. And even when you—even um, Google, after their $26 million round at the time, that was a big round—they, uh, you know, people used to joke they were called frugal Google because mm-hmm. Google still mm-hmm. cared deeply about saving money. And when they met us at Applied Semantics, uh, we were sort of bragging how we got a. Is back in the days, a sublease of a sublease. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, some internet company spent a lot of money to deck out the place, yep. and someone else rented it, and then they couldn't afford it. And so we got this like like double discount. And we were bragging about that to Google. And apparently, Google's like, we loved how you guys were into the fact that you scraped off, you know, 30 cents and then another 20 cents nice. per square foot. Nice. And uh, that was meaningful to them at the time, that we weren't going to go and waste their money just because they're a big company didn 't mean that we had permission to go and waste all their dollars right
0: yeah that 's wonderful that 's always been my mentality yeah, I mean you can go too extreme right I think there's times in my career where I, I starved the business too much but it's always it 's only clear to me in retrospect at the time it 's hard to know yeah so so I know if I, I have a friend i won't i won 't embarrass him by saying his name early Google person and I ask him about. You know, I told him I was going to talk to you and whatever. And he's, he, this was his recollection. He goes, I remember. He goes, we bought so many companies, John. We just bought a ton of companies. Nice. He goes, I remember those guys. They, when they were announced, you know, when it was announced at some big company meeting, hey, we bought this company. You guys, this is his recollection. And I, my interpretation mm-hmm. of his recollection. Four people walked in carrying a surfboard and you had somebody sitting on the surfboard. Do you recall that? He said of all the interests of all the companies we bought, he thought that was the best one. So he said you guys were trying to say we're from SoCal, you know, we got. Now,
1: if we would have done that, there's only one person we would have put on the surfboard, would have been Eva. He
0: said it was a woman, yeah.
1: It would have to have been Eva. Um, you couldn't have carried anyone else. Yeah. Do right? <laughs> uh, yeah, so you, you do not recall that? So as sort of when, when Google bought us, we gave them a gift, and the gift was a surfboard, and it said, hang 10 to the 100th. Yes, I didn't come up with it. Geek humor, geek humor. Adam came up with it. (laughs) But he did say that it had like a Google logo on it or something. Yeah, and then they gave us the gift back to put in our office. Right. Well, hey. (laughs) It's like, thank you. Here you go. (laughs) We don't serve here. But um, But
0: at least it was memorable. Nothing else.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I think
0: you guys were showing sort of your your culture, like your you know, sort of the voice of the company, a little carefree.
1: Yeah, it was still the early days of Google. There were only a, a thousand people there, and it was still kind of like a small high school where everybody knew each other and um, not like
0: a small nation. Like yeah, it,
1: it, it did feel like a little bit of summer camp in a sense that like there's a the whole campus was set around a volleyball court, yep. and oftentimes like Sergey would be there at the end of the day playing. So it it felt very familial and um, just comfortable.
0: Yeah, and I I, um, I think I've mentioned this before in the air. I don't know. But I had an offer, a company I was involved with, Google wanted to buy it, right? Um, I go back to my board, I go back to my CEOs, and, I mean my CEO, and, and I'm so excited, because I just, I just knew we were going to sell our business. And it was right over, a little bit, late, it was a year after you sold um, your company. Um, and I couldn't get them over the hump. They just felt like, oh, Google's overvalued, and you know this, that, and the other, which shocked me. Almost the same price point. I think we were kind of in the 75 million to 100 million. So it wasn't a huge exit, but it was Google pre IPO stock. So you guys sold your business for a little over 100 million. You were in, in private Google stock. You were able to get over that hump. How, what gave you that confidence? Like, I couldn't, I always kind of make myself responsible for that. I couldn't get, I couldn't sell the vision to these people. So
1: it's a crazy story. We couldn't sell the vision either. And they did not accept the value of the Google stock at the time. Ah. Um, our, our folks had a 3X preference. By the way, I didn't know what a 3X preference was <laughs> when we signed that you agreement. You usually
0: find out when, you, uh, yeah,
1: you, when it matters. <laughs> you're tw- right. The venture person's like, just sign this. It's fine. What does this mean? Like, just sign it's this. It's a rip-off. Don't do it. So we signed a 3X preference. We didn't quite understand it. But it essentially means they get their 3X their money back. Well, Google comes to us and we go, well, we got all this Google stock, so why don't we pay you back in stock? And they say, we don't want that stock. Right. You better give us all the cash. And so we unwittingly, and at the time... Not totally happy about it. Like, essentially gave them most of the cash. Wow. And we got to keep more of the stock. But it worked so, out so I don't
0: know if that's clear to you guys. <laughs> but that was like a huge favor, right? You ended up yeah. getting one but of the, the most valuable
1: stocks at the time. But literally, the discussion was, you take the stock. No, you take the stock. Wow. So, uh, you know. Did you ever run
0: the math on, on what was the split? Was it 50-50 or?
1: No, it was like 40-60 cash.
0: Okay. 40 stock? For,
1: 40 42 in cash, sixteen in stock. Okay.
0: So 60 in stock. Did you ever bother to run that math? Like if, if somebody held their... I did that, unfortunately. It was very depressing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's more. It's a ton. Yeah. It's, 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 it's probably got a nine, nine figures in it.
0: So did you... Did people end up holding? Had a, I mean, you didn't have a big figures. company back then.
1: Ten, ten figures.
0: Yeah, it's, it's got to be figures. at least. Ten figures, ten figures. Yeah, it's got to be at least, at least ten figures.
1: Yeah, yeah. Were people holders, or did a lot of people just sort of sell their stuff? I think it's a mix. I, I assume everybody had different schedules, yeah. but you know, it, it has been uh, fourteen years since the IPO. So, wow, you know. Folks do diversify over time.
0: Sure, over time. But I, I, I sold another company, and we took a bunch of stock. And I was kind of surprised. A lot of the senior executives sold all their stock in one day in a block trade. And I'm like, let it ride. You know? And it, it rode. It went up. It did nice. But
1: See, now, after you, held your, after you bought your Bitcoin at 14000 or whatever you guys <laughs> got there, and you watched it go down $8,000, you're it like, rise. no, sell everything. I, let it ride. I don't know. It depends when you get in and how you feel that day and you know, what your risk tolerance is in life.
0: So you, you, you touched about this a little bit, but I think it's still worth um, maybe exploring a little bit more. Um, you you left in 07, you joined Google in 03, and they changed dramatically in that time period. So yeah. if you could just maybe describe some of those changes, and then what led you to finally saying, dude, I'm out? I mean, everybody in 07 wanted to work at Google. 03 still was a smaller, maybe not the cachet.
1: Mm. Yeah, so I, when I started, it was 1,000 people. When we, in 07, when I left, it was 20,000 people. Uh, it was just more, everything was more more campuses, more restaurants, more people, more projects. Uh, the intensity was similar, mm-hmm. um, bureaucracy was creeping in, things got were getting a little slower right. uh, so you know you know f- contracts were still four months or more, uh, and that was that did wear on me a little bit like i I liked to go quicker and uh, and i didn't want to take that it was going to take that year to make films, so you know the uh, the uh, you know go tr- go try that other thing after that 4 year experience and you felt like in,
0: you know you you grew that business tremendously 600 million dollars is yeah. incredible was, was did you feel like you were getting those psychic rewards as that entrepreneur that you were you were building your own business and then at some point you're like 600 million what's next 800 i mean it's not worth it it was
1: it was a really a it was like a it was a a whole good new experience in a sense that um you know uh started you know, starting going to a lot of conferences and running, running a lot of the bigger deals. We'd have to run these deals by the executive team, so it was just like a new set of experiences. I think it, at Google, they didn't think six hundred million dollars was all that much. I know, like I know. it would be six hundred million, and they'd they'd forget forget about you right, for that amount. Right, so right. Uh, it wasn't. It didn't feel like a lot over there. Yeah. Uh, and look, the product was good, so it wasn't that. Getting Applied Semantics to thirteen million dollars a year was way harder than getting Google to six hundred million dollars yep. a year because right. at that point we are the only game in town for a product that worked extremely well. So there was nothing else for anybody to use, you know.
0: Right. Yeah, but that shows how self-aware you are. Because believe me, there's a lot of people in the world that would, to this day, believe that they kind of did that on their, um, on their
1: own. This is something I've come up with this little theory lately. Um, that I don't know if I should, but I'll put it out here. So, I watched that Stanford Prison Experiment movie again. And, you know, you put certain people in power, and you know, it gets to their head, and they start treating you a certain way. Um, What's really weird is the way that I know I'm going to get in trouble for this at some point. Sometime in the future. The way that some of the big companies in this world treat you right now remind me a lot of the Stanford Prison Experiment. You can take a 24 year or 25-year-old kid with no reason to have an ego. Right. And you put them at a company that's got a lot of power. And the way they will treat you on the other side of the table or the phone is like that person from the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yep. As if, like, I don't have to show you any compassion as a human. I don't have to show you any empathy. I don't have to care about what you're saying or let you finish your sentence. Right. That's literally what it feels like. And... (laughs) I hope someone addresses this issue. I hope there's... What happened... I hope someone addresses this issue. I don't
0: think you'll get in trouble for that. I mean, I I was always small company... That's how
1: afraid I am of the big companies right now. Literally. That's how afraid... Is there anybody outside the door? Uh, Like, There's actually three guys. Every one of my companies cares deeply about those four companies. Right. Any one of those four companies could kind of destroy any of my companies. Right. Well, that's so, a large.
0: That's a larger issue. Yeah. Um, which I guess we won't go into here. But yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's going to have a day of reckoning. It has to have a day of reckoning.
1: Or that could just be a little nicer. Just uh, good luck. You
0: know, yeah. Well, I'm, I've always been the small company person trying to work with a big company. And Yahoo, circa 0102, was exactly what you're describing. Yep. So I was probably in my mm-hmm. I don't know how old I was then. I was, I was older mm-hmm. than these kids.
1: And, I remember. And they
0: were really obnoxious. Yeah, I so remember here's, them. Uh, here's a quick anecdote. So I'm my my software was go to meeting, go to my PC. It was screen sharing. So I'm sharing my screen with these people from Yahoo. They're so brilliant that they're chatting about me while I'm watching their screen. And they're like saying you know, rude stuff, like you know. Wait, but do you, they know you can see it? So i well, you would think they would know it. So finally, I go, um, you guys know I can see your screen, right? like they shut it down. But that's that obnoxious, rude, like to be on the phone with somebody who's trying to engage them in a partnership and to be typing, you know, I don't even remember what it was, but it was yeah. rude and belittling.
1: And- so, right, people are talking a lot about, um, yes, you know, Facebook and YouTube can kind of basically control what we consume, uh, can control whether we're seeing right-wing stuff or left-wing stuff. Right. Uh, they have a lot of market power. Um, but if you look at the individuals, and I bet you something is happening to them too. Yeah. Something is happening to them too. The individuals who have too much power.
0: Well, Wired. I think it was Wired. Just I'm going to date myself on this video because this thing has a long tail. But look at look up uh, Wired. Just had a really good article on on um, Google, uh, Facebook's last two years and how they've been dealing with fake news and the Russia thing. And and it goes to your point. People inside the company are like, This is real for us. Like this is my business, too, and and the way we address this matters to me. So I think you're right. There's a lot of angst inside the companies, not just the C-suite. I'll take uh, the next student's question.
1: What were you doing while working as a software salesperson that led you to become co-founder of Oingo? So let's see. Uh, Again, that was... So started in 96. Um, The Internet bubble really started just showing it signs in early in late 98. So basically between late 98 onward, all that was happening at my apartment was just talking about internet ideas. Like what what internet company can we build? What internet company can we build? Yep. And maybe starting around March of 99, we started writing out a business plan. And um, we had a 40-page business plan. You know it's worthless. Yeah. Total 40-page business plan. There's just no reason to ever like it's just silly um but back then that was more than normal i know that's so so silly you'd have to like write this by the time you would write your 40 page document it would be too old yeah like it just wouldn't make any sense um and uh as a as a salesperson at amd uh i was i was trying to sell you know computer chips to all these uh all these different folks and one of the groups i went to go and sell to was a group in pasadena who wanted to do a low-cost computer um at the time, computers cost $1,000. A company called eMachines did yeah. this $399 computer. Yep. Uh, it, it didn't work because you can't, couldn't sell a computer for $399. But this other this small company in Pasadena wanted to do it, too. And uh, I'm talking to them about it, and they're like, we're going to invest half a million dollars in this idea. And I'm thinking, if you have half a million dollars, I got this other idea I want to show you. Um, and so I, uh, I felt pretty strongly about the whole concept of like conflict of interest and said... I want to show you something. Can I come back here after work um, and talk to you about something else? And so came back after work, brought my brother that same day, and we showed them what we were working on. And um, they were probably the 20th group we pitched for money, 25th group. But a day later, they gave us like an email term sheet for, to invest half a million dollars in the company, and nice. I, I quit my job seven days later.
0: That was the upside of those days. Yeah. <laughs> The forty-page business plan sucked, and Shh. and the VC jamming their buddy into your company sucked. But the fact that everyone was kind of it was a bit of a gold rush, and everybody wanted to. Get I don't. Their I feel pace. like
1: people are throwing money right now. Yeah, it is. It's another gold rush. All those ICOs.
0: It's another gold rush. Yep.
1: People are throwing a lot of money at those things. This guy knows what I'm talking about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so getting back to. Kind of what Gil's been up to. Factual. He started some other businesses. Started what Ten One Ten with Dave and all. Yeah. Um. That's a venture fund. Sorry. Did how involved are you with him professionally now? Like, are you in Ten One Ten? Did you want to do your own fund?
1: Yeah, I'm like a part time venture partner with Ten One Ten, and I'm an LP. So yeah, I help them scope out deals, and I, I really do enjoy the process of uh, meeting young folks who are thinking about starting companies. I just, I've, I found it to be a really rewarding experience. I like to be supportive of it. And, you know, if if there's potentially an investment and money to be made, that's great, too.
0: Right. So you, are you doing angel stuff on the side as well? Yeah. So what do you, so this might help some of the folks in the room and watching. I mean, this question gets asked all the time, but I think it's worth hearing your version of the What answer. am I looking for? Not not sorry. what are you looking for. What are the things that are just complete no's? Like, you know, it's like, it's an utterance. It's a, something they do. Oh, Something they do that either it's an email exchange, an not just looking at a business oh, you know, a PowerPoint,
1: grammatical mistakes in their first email. Mm-hmm. I'll just delete. Just stop. Right. Punctuation, right. capitalization. Right. I think if if you're gonna take the time to ask somebody for money, you should take the time to spell check your email. <laughs>
0: right. Length. My issue sometimes is I want to help young people. I get a lot of inbound email. And I, you can't expect me to read War and Peace. And like, what do you want me to do? Like, I'm just looking for what is the ask here? Yeah. Make it easy for me to help you.
1: Yeah. Make, be able to skim through that entire email in about 45 seconds, yeah. right? Get yeah. to the gist. And either
0: I could say, no, I can't help you, but yeah. Eaton can. Or, you know, just give me, give me an actionable, because I, I want to help, but I'm not just going to delete your email. But so, so I, I think that's important. I mean, you, it's hard when you're an entrepreneur, you're young, and you want to get all, all the ideas out in one email we don't care like right not the time
1: right right just a, a few bullet points bullet points are easy to scan i like bullet points yep. and uh, yep. if you can get a warm introduction yes, if you can get for sure somebody if you go to linkedin and look for a mutual and get that person to forward the email i think it increases your chances of probably by 3 to 400% at least maybe 600% yeah cuz at least what you know is that the mutual person is sort of kind of doing a vouch yeah right like I'm a, at least going to stamp my name on it that I'm comfortable forwarding this person's email. Otherwise, um, yeah, that's a, it's, a big, it's a good hurdle. You just get a lot of inbound,
0: and it's hard to evaluate it. So when someone else puts their brand on it, you at least say, OK, I respect this person. I'm going to honor it. I'm yeah. going to do something with this one. Um, we'll, take, we'll take another student's question.
1: Eitan, I appreciate your ambition and work ethic that you've shown since you were a young kid. Can you talk a little more in depth about the process of raising the venture capital? Is it something that you guys created a list of VCs and then achieved them, or did they reach out to you? Um, So we grew up in a world without LinkedIn, and (laughs) so we'd literally be like, everyone we talked to, we'd be like, do you know any investors? And, you know, just one by one, you'd write-down list of, like, anybody who would know investors, can you introduce us to them? And, uh, gosh, even back then, it was like, we were still making phone calls Mm -hmm. to try and get them on the phone. Leaving voicemails. Yeah. Um, Greg Martin. I remember, like, hi, Greg, can I, you know, can we chat about our business? Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, can we get a meeting? And uh, so nobody would ever find us. Nobody ever reached out to offer money to us. We just tried our best to ask as many friends, family, if they had money or if anybody they knew had money. And we were, we were pretty shameless. We would just, like, <laughs> literally ask everybody. Like, like, the, like, I had heard that my friend's dad, who I went to elementary school with, sold his dental business in San Antonio, Texas. And I called him, who I hadn't talked to in years. You know, I'd call anybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it sounds, it sounds kind of crazy, but when you believe in something so passionately... You feel like you're doing them a favor. You're like, this is going to be big. We're going to sell
1: to Google. And then you did. Did that yeah. dentist put money in? He did not. Oh. He did not. Dumbass. Where are you? For the Bogle. most part, not a single friend or family member put in any money. Uh, we never got there. They didn't believe in us.
0: Wow. Your family didn't believe in you.
1: Our fa- so, I'm sorry. Our I'm, family believed in I'm us. We, I'm teasing. We didn't, we didn't come from uh, mean, you know, yeah. financial means. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, My parents actually put money in a couple of mine. Thank God I got that money back and they made some money. But yeah. they, could, they didn't have a lot left over either. Um, so in 2011, you you co-founded Scopely, the gaming company that I mentioned with Walter, who's a great guy, a really accessible person. I remember one thing he said to me. It's like, I don't remember anything. I can't remember what I had for lunch, honestly. Um, but he said something to this effect, roughly. Uh, we were talking about how... I was thinking about investing. And I'm such a brilliant investor, I didn't um, invest. But... It was mostly because I couldn't get a big enough percent of the company. That's what I told myself, um, which is a dumb reason. So anyway, he said something like this to me. I said, how did you get, because they had a successful company called Dice, um, Dice with Buddies. Like, how did you get you know, Dice with Buddies successful? How are you going to re- replicate that? And he said something to the effect that if you're trying to get your first game to succeed, it's like trying to climb a mountain with no hands. Once you get that first game, you can then throw that rope down, and all the other games can kind of be hoisted up um, you know, behind it, not quite that easy. But I thought that was a good analogy. So, what do you remember about landing that first hit, and then how they grew that franchise, Walking Dead, and a bunch of other hits that they had? And you were head of strategy, so you were kind of thinking about the long term there.
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna take your question. I'm gonna shift and redirect. It wasn't long bit. enough. <laughs> um, like it, it comes down to Walter. Walter really? is just an amazing co-founder. He's just a, in many ways, like a remarkable human being. Yep. Um, I was fortunate. To start a company with a guy who uh, is extremely, extremely smart, um, very, very hardworking, will not take no for an answer, visionary, uh, charismatic, and somehow can do everything with a smile, even through like the greatest pains of growing mm-hmm. a company. Mm. He was always able to get up there in front of the group and, you know, rally rally us through a a, a speech that you felt impassioned by. Mm-hmm. Um, I joke. Sometimes I think, like, if we were in the Middle East, like roaming as tribes, like Walter would have been one of the leaders of the tribes. Um, and so, finding our way to these games, like Dice with Buddies, it was December of 2011. You know, it was only our, you know, twelve. You know, it was our first year as a company, and that was the fifth thing we tried. Mm. Um, we'd probably already essentially spent. You know, uh, two out of our three and a half million dollars by this point. Right. And maybe two and a half out of it. And hadn't really hit traction. So that was the first thing that we did that is still alive today. Mm. Right? Everything that predates Dice with Buddies. And that really propelled us into mobile games. Yep, uh, We sort of left Facebook apps behind. Which was a good thing. Because it turns out that Facebook wasn't a hospitable place yes, to app developers. Not the world's
0: best ecosystem. Yeah. Did you get your oil painting?
1: I'm on one of the oil paintings. Oh, yeah. uh, if you, if you, so this ins- inside story. Uh, so Walter is really great about building culture into the company. I think it's a good lesson. If, yep. you're, if you're starting a company, think about the individual traditions that would be meaningful to you. And if you if you can, you know, if you last, I think it's one year anniversary we're doing now at Scopely. Uh-huh. He, uh, Walter would get commissioned for you an oil painting of you in any sort of uh, historical setting you want. So, you know, These one. These things are hilarious. Yeah, like one person, like, Bill Kang was like the first man on the moon. And, you know, someone else was the Mona Lisa. And uh, that, that was, uh, yeah, um, you know, you, you'd, you'd cast yourself as some historical, f- and, and it was like a, a good looking yeah. oil painting Professional. that looked like, looked like we spent thousands of dollars on it. right. We knew how to buy them cheaper. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, when I visited them there, I think they were in Venice, and there was either four or five of those up the stairs, and that was it. There was a handful of people there.
1: Yeah. There's like, like 150 now. Wow. Yeah. And 100
0: million in revenue, so shows how smart I am.
1: We'll take the last
0: uh, student's question.
1: You're a co-founder of several companies. Is there any reason that you chose to co-found rather than be a solo founder? And then what's your biggest piece of advice for in regards to co-founding with other people? Um, I think one of the things I learned about myself over these years is that I actually really like to be the number two guy. Um, it's, I don't like managing. I don't like managing people. Me either. It's not something I'm particularly good at, and it's not something I'm particularly interested in. Um, and as a CEO, you know, want to co-found with someone who's very comfortable leading. The, the things that I love to do are, you know, we all we all need to figure out what our skill sets are. And the things that I found I was good at were uh, fundraising, uh, product vision, and, and recruiting were probably the, the three things I I did best. And so you you don't need to be a CEO to do any of those things, uh, but you do need to. Uh, manage people if you're gonna be a CEO. So it was always great to have a co founder yeah. who was the lead um, was the chief executive and uh, yeah that that was that worked for and uh, I think in, in I think as you think about whether or not you want to do a startup or join someone else's company or do your own company just again like figure out what, what it is you want and what your, your skill set is and like where in the organization you can play. Um, you know you know, it's someone who ended up being a, you know, someone who ended up being a director at Uber, you know, might have been way more financially successful than the CEO of a company who sold for hundred million dollars uh, if you got in at the right time, and your life might be way less stressful too. So, you know, there's pros and cons to it all. I'd say
0: don't get caught up in the, in the career track either because everyone thinks, well, the next step is CEO for you. It's like, maybe not. Like, I didn't want to do it. I mean, and, and for a lot of – I've always felt like C- good CEOs were therapists. Like, they had their revolving door of, of problems that would come in and, and complain to them, and that's, that's not really where I wanted to be in life. Or you're a really good salesperson, and, oh, the natural progression is your VP of sales. Like, no, maybe you're not going to be a good VP of sales. So don't, I don't think that's as common now as it used to be, but that was, there was tracks and people felt like I need to progress up this track or something's wrong. Don't do that. Find out what your propensity, um, what your proclivities are, what you're good at and shoot, if you do that forever, that's fine. So you're, you're still very young. You've got a lot more to give um, this planet and a lot more to give the tech community. What do you think's next for you? Either if you want to talk specifically, that's great. Do you feel like you're going to are you going to become an operator again is it more investing kind of what is it you know what's the next 10 years got in store for you
1: Yeah I've really spent the last few years doing you know being an operator again mm-hmm. and uh I I I do like the idea of of maybe uh spending a couple years as uh being an investor um spending a little more time on that uh uh it's it's been a yeah I've I've probably been I've probably been on one of these like 16 hour 7 day kicks for the last two months here Mm. um it's just i'd I'd love to take myself out of it but sometimes you're you're a little stuck so you know you go through these phases and uh you know be nice to to get get a couple months of downtime
0: yeah yeah the thing about being an investor and you know this is it is kind of like having grandkids like you can play with the grandkids and then just hand them off to the parents and split that's how i feel at a board meeting i go into a board meeting and i'm like "Eh, maybe think about this maybe think about that good luck Right. <laughs> it's not quite yes. that easy, but, I, but compared to like those people that have to stay and implement and stay seven days a week and 10 hours a day, and it's quite a different life. But again, what I just said about finding your proclivity, that may not be the right fit for you, right? You might say, no, but I like being an operator. Sure, I'd like to have a break every once in a while, but...
1: Yeah, you know, it's... Um, there are moments that are... There are a lot of moments that are great, and the great moments are great, and I think that's what we do them for, but... Mm-hmm. Um, the intense moments can be really draining, and I, I um, you know, I've, I've even gone some, through some of those recently. Uh, and uh, it invades your thoughts, it invades your weekends, it invades yeah, your nights. For sure, you know, you you can wake up in the middle of the night thinking about this stuff, and you you want to sort of you want to sort of turn it off, but it's hard if you're if you're an operator, if a team of fifty, you know, relies on you, their jobs depend on you. Um, you know, investor capital right. depends on you. Right. Uh, it's, it's a lot to take on.
0: Yeah, you can't just walk away. Yeah,
1: I can't even imagine if you're the CEO of a 10,000-person company that seems way... You probably have a lot
0: more help, right?
1: Yeah. Does, does the money ever get in the way for you
0: as far as, um, not necessarily your motivation, but I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, I remember one time I was sitting in an airport, you know, whatever, my flight was canceled. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm asking, I'm like, what the hell am I doing this for? Like, I don't need to do this shit. And so sometimes for me, the money made it harder to get up for being an operator.
1: Um, I'm going to one more time redirect your question. <laughs> uh, uh, there's really only... There was one key difference, and I'm going to... I wasn't ever a guy who needed much, and I, my, guy, my older brother wasn't. We just weren't families who needed much. Right. And I think... A, um, The, the moments I remember, so I, I sold my company, and uh, I remember walking down the cereal aisle at Ralph's, and I always wanted Life Cereal growing up, but Life Cereal was three ninety nine, and I'd always buy Cheerios or Cornflakes or whatever was on sale because I was fifty or $2, yep. and I never, ever let myself buy Life Cereal. And I swear to God, the, it's going to sound like the biggest difference in my life today is that I always walk up and buy that box of Life Cereal. No coupon. That's it. <laughs> No coupon. No coupon. It's three ninety nine. It's not on sale, and I will buy it. <laughs> All right. That's a good note to end on. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.